please turn to John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. Everybody ready? All right. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. There was, uh, this was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the amount of, uh, the amount of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. Uh, the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, and God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Stand with me if you would as we've read the Word of God. Stretch your legs a little bit. Father, we are glad to be in the scriptures this morning. We ask now that as the word of God has been read, that our hearts would be open to receive the seed of the scripture, that it would be founded in good soil. Keep us from distractions and those things which would rob us from hearing your truth. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be the teacher this morning and that we would be prepared to hear from you. God, we need to hear a word from God. We've heard it now. I pray now we would figure out ways in which that word lives in us. And we thank you that we can study this great gospel of John. Bless now the hearing and the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, we all said together, amen, amen, amen. You can grab your seat. If you remember back to your school days, if you remember back to your school days, you might remember, especially if you're in college, uh, two very important astronomers, um, Claudius Ptolemy and Nicholas Copernicus, two very important figureheads. And uh, Claudius Ptolemy uh, was around 100 AD, and he developed a theory in astronomy, uh, his early view of the cosmos, which was called a geocentric view of the world which the geocentric view of the world was essentially, Ptolemy believed that, as he understood the cosmos to be, that the earth was at the center and it was stationary and all of the planets and the sun and the moon all orbited around the earth. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, people believed Ptolemy's view of the cosmos until 
Copernicus came with his revolution 1,500 years later, and he posed a revolutionary view of the cosmos called the heliocentric worldview. Maybe you remember that term, which essentially put the sun, as we now know, at the center of the universe, and all the planets now orbit around the sun, which we know is correct, of course. But it really rocked Western thought at that time because essentially we were for hundreds of years believing Ptolemy's view that we were the center of the universe. And Copernicus popped our bubble and said, no, something else is the center of the universe. You're not it. This dirt clod called planet Earth is not the center and source of all life. (laughs) And when we study the scriptures... Especially this morning, I think there's a Copernican revolution that needs to take place in the heart of anyone who sets out to become a follower and worshiper of Jesus Christ. That is this Copernican revolution. You are not the center. The Son of God, Jesus the Christ, is the center. Can you say amen? Amen. You are not the center. It is not about you. This is not for you. It blesses you, but it is not about you. And it is a blessing to realize that the world does not revolve around you or us. God loves us, but it is not helpful for us to become the center. It is only helpful when the most powerful is at the center. And this text confronts us with Jesus being our center. And that's what we're going to talk about essentially this morning. And I want to approach it by a couple of ways. First of all, I'm just going to make a very obvious statement. So you can be relieved if you got lost in astronomy in in the last few moments to just go, I'm going to make a very basic statement that you would almost say, Brian, how long did it take you to come up with that? But then I want to find that truth from our text and then talk to you in conclusion about why that truth is important. So my very obvious statement is this. Christianity is primarily about Christ. Therefore, every Christian life should be primarily about Christ. Very good. Yeah, obvious statement, right? You call yourself a Christian. You know the word Christian. It means Christ with the I-A-N suffix, which means belonging to the company of Christ. So that's what it is to be a Christian. So it all revolves around the person of Jesus, and we see that in our text this morning. Kind of an interesting text if you really think about it, because at this time, John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin, is uh, becoming very popular in his ministry. He's attracting lots of followers. He's kind of the, the new hot preacher, this kind of like desert-dwelling mystic who comes out dressed in camel skin and long beard and uncut hair. He's a Nazarite. He's a vegan. Uh, I guess, you, can you be a vegan and eat locusts? Maybe not. I don't know. He's, he's out there uh, eating locusts and wild honey. Sorry for you vegans um, and vegetarians and such that would never harm a little locust. Uh, John the Baptist was eating that and honey. He, so he's probably a very skinny guy. A very interesting guy, wild-eyed man from the desert who comes in and is preaching repentance and baptizing, and he becomes extremely popular. And we see in verse 23, it says in our text that John was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water, 
and people were coming and being baptized. And so John is doing this great work of baptizing many, but at the same time, there's this another rabbi who was not a desert mystic, but they actually called him a glutton and a wine-bibber. They said, oh, he's always eating and drinking. He's hanging out with the prostitutes and the, the tax collectors and the shady folks. And, and, and he's just this kind of entirely different guy than John the Baptist. And he's, at the same time, this Rabbi Yeshua of Nazareth is gaining popularity. Verse 22, Jesus and his disciples had gone to the Judean countryside and they were also doing what? They were baptizing. So here you have the conflict. Two Powerful men doing ministry in the same small community, both baptizing, both teaching, both creating a great stir there in Judea. And you know, often that's what happens when big name pastors, especially their followers, the followers of a big leader are often the worst. And so, you know, you think in our area, you know, it's like Elevation Church and Summit, right? Stephen Furtick and J.D. Greer. I mean, which it proves that you don't even have to live here to have a church here. You can live in Charlotte and have a church here, then it'll blow up. But, but, but in, in our area, those are the two big leaders. And, and there can often be between the disciples of either believer, sort of a compare and a competition between the two. Where you compare your pastor against this pastor, your church against this church. And that was happening. Now, it's crazy to think that John the Baptist, his followers thought that John was in competition with Jesus. What preacher would ever want to be in competition with Jesus? You were in a big old mess if you were trying to compete with Jesus. That's not your role. And John clears that up because they come to him, verse 26, and they say, listen, John, do you know that Jesus is baptizing people and people are actually leaving you to follow him? That's not right. They're leaving our church, our little clique, and they're going after Jesus. And John the Baptist seeks to clear that up right away. He reminds them that he told them, I never told you, never told you that I was the Messiah. I always told you that I was here only as the forerunner pointing to Jesus. His, John the Baptist's entire life and existence was to point to Jesus. Now, verse 28, he, he, he points out, he said, I was sent as the forerunner. This is the role of every godly Christian leader. If a leader is pointing to himself, I ain't following I will only follow that man's or that woman's pointer finger to Jesus. And John the Baptist is very clear. I must decrease. I must become less. He must get bigger. He must become more. Christian leadership is not about being popular. If you're worried about being popular, and that's, a, that's one of the unfortunate sides of living in the United States, is we are all about making everybody popular. But, but Christianity is the exact opposite of 21st century Western American culture. Hero worship. There's only one hero in the story. His name is Jesus Christ, and the rest of us are being saved by the one who is at the center. And so any leader, any church that's pointing to themselves, itself is about itself. I really wish our church didn't even have a name. People just say, where do you go? I go to church. Well, what church? I go to a church. A group of people, and this is where they meet. This is what time they meet. Because it's not really, we're not trying to stamp everything. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. The, the, the greatest thing about Emmaus is that we are a Jesus church. If we got everything else wrong, we got that one right. 
We are a church that is about Jesus Christ. And if you wonder, hey, man, what's your church about, Jesus? It's just about Jesus. And John the Baptist essentially has his disciples saying, you know, listen, a lot of people are leaving you and going after Jesus. And he's like, that's why I'm here. I came so that people would follow Jesus. That's why I'm here. I'm here so that you follow Jesus. And if it ever comes to a point where the Lord's like, they're all following Jesus, you don't need to be here anymore, then I'm out. I don't need to be somewhere where, 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 where I'm trying to become the center of attention. There should never be a preacher or a leader in this capacity at Emmaus that is trying to get followers. I'm not trying to get followers. I'm just doing my best with you along with our leadership to say, let's make Jesus great. He is great, but let's display him as great. And the minute we stop doing that, we might as well close down shop. So John the Baptist is in this funny tension wherein his disciples, his followers, are trying to get him to compete with Jesus. And he's like, you have no idea what you're talking about. So then he uses this analogy to define his role in the kingdom. And he uses, of all things, a Jewish wedding ceremony. And he basically says this, there's the bride, which is the church, those who would follow the bridegroom or be married to the bridegroom. Then there's the bridegroom, it's Jesus. And then there's the friend of the bridegroom. And we would, that's the equivalent of the best man. John says, I'm basically the best man at a wedding. I am not trying to compete with the bridegroom for his bride. I mean, what best man tries to swoop up on your lady? A bad one, right? Not a good man. You wouldn't make him your best man. Your best man is right there to make sure. And in, in, this, in this time, the best man had a very key role. The friend of the bridegroom, he was actually the wedding coordinator, he was the one that got all the details together and made sure the ceremony went off, that the bride was where she needed to be, that the groom was coming, and he had everything he needed. And his joy was when he heard the voice of the bridegroom and said, oh, he's coming for his bride. And then he would step back, the ceremony would commence, and he was full of joy because the job of bringing his best friend to his new bride was, was being accomplished. And then he would just make sure their honeymoon accommodations were ready. He would lead them there and the rest would take care of itself, if you know what I mean. John the Baptist then said, then my job is done. And essentially, John the Baptist, these are his last recorded words. He's basically saying, now that you disciples are informing me that people are leaving me to go get married to Jesus, go follow Jesus, he starts backing out and going, I'm done. Like, I, I did my job. The thing I was here to do has been done. They don't need me anymore. They've got him. That is the point of parenting, of leadership, of everything. Our job is to take people, as John the Baptist did, from where they are not connected to Jesus to connect them with Jesus and then just kind of back off. Because Jesus has got this, right? And so John, he does something very interesting in this text. John the Baptist, um, we see over and over, he makes much of Jesus and he lays out his Christology. So I'm just going to throw out a little bit of John's Christology, which is just basically his doctrine of Christ. And he says uh, several important things. First of all, we see in John's the Baptist Christology, my purpose is to make Jesus known and myself unknown. How many people that is that their life mission? That's a good life mission. Verse 30, he must become greater, I must become less. 
Secondly, Jesus is preeminent over all things. Verse 31, the one who comes from heaven is above all. Thirdly, Jesus was sent by God and speaks the words of God. 34, the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Next, Jesus has limitless access to the Spirit and is powerful working. Notice it says about Jesus that God gives him the Spirit without limit. And then Jesus is loved by the Father and has been given charge over everything. This is a powerful piece of Scripture. Look at verse 35. You might underline this if you're still reading uh, a real Bible with pages and stuff. Um, Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has placed what? Verse 35, everything in His hands. Jesus is loved by Father and has been given charge over how many things? Everything. Jesus finally is the way to eternal life, and without him there is not life. Verse 36 again, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And so again to our stated thesis. Christianity is primarily about Christ, and therefore every one of us who call ourselves Christians should have our life primarily revolving around Christ. Jesus Christ. And the church says, and I think that point is clearly demonstrated by John the Baptist's words here in John chapter 3. But now to an important question about this thesis that I put out before you, that Christianity is primarily about Christ and so ought our lives to be. And that is the question of why is this truth important? Is this truth important? Especially for those of you who have grown up in the church, maybe um, you grew up with these assumptions that it is all about Jesus, and you never asked the question is, why would that even be important? So I want to um, answer this question in a few ways, but first I'm going to give you a John Stott quote. How many of you guys like John Stott? He was an Anglican preacher. I know the newbies love Anglicans, so um, we get a shout from the newbies, right? Come on, Shannon, wave your hand. Go. Woo, Anglican preachers. I'm quoting Anglican just for you guys. Um, but John Stott, very influential leader, uh, broadly across the church, um, wrote this. Nothing is more important for Christian discipleship than a fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. I'm going to read that again. Nothing is more important for Christian discipleship than a fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. This may be my most important sermon. Not because it's an awesome sermon, but because it's the most important subject. And here's why this is important. A few reasons. Number one, Jesus is the truth. Number two, Jesus is God's priority. And number three, Jesus is where life is found. And and that's the point I hope we really see as we walk away. But let's start at the top with Jesus is the truth. So this week I was reading a little bit, as I do on um, my prep times, uh, and I, I read a variety of things, and I was reading an article um, which was just a Q&A of a panel of leaders at Cambridge University, and several Christian leaders came together and were just kind of taking questions from the audience after they had given sort of their talk. And uh, a woman uh, who looked like she had, you know, some kind of issues, angry frustrated, she looked perturbed, approached the mic and, and, and called out one of the leaders on the panel and asked this question. You believe in one God, right? And the answer for every Christian in the room is yes, right. 
She says, okay, so you believe in one God, therefore you think that all other gods are wrong, right? And the answer, although that's a loaded question because she knows she just loaded her gun and you're not really going to win, but what do you say to that? Right. You believe in one God, therefore you are saying that all other gods are wrong, right? He smiles, right. Then, of course, the look of horror and disgust, she responds, how can you be so arrogant? And she marches off. Now, have you ever had a conversation that went something like that with somebody? When they find out in a pluralistic society what you believe and what you're actually saying about what you believe? So you're telling me, Brian, out of the seven billion people on planet Earth, Billions and billions of them are Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, and thousands of other religions. And you're telling me, you think you have found the only way to God and everyone else is wrong. Yes. You are exclusive. You are a bigot. You are arrogant. I don't know who you think you are. You live in a bubble, man. Wake up. The world is a big place. Go to India. You'll see how many Hindus there are in the world. Go to the Middle East and see how many people are living under the Islamic faith. Open your eyes, Christian. And, and we hear that kind of rhetoric. It was interesting. I saw a transcript from an interview that Larry King did. He, you know, he gets these Christian leaders on there and puts them in the hot seats and stuff. And you know he's always going to ask about homosexuality or um, exclusivity in Christianity, right? And so Larry King asks uh, Rick Warren, uh, he's interviewing Rick Warren, Pastor Saddleback, um, about the exclusivity of, of uh, our claims as Christians that Jesus is the way. And, and Rick just steps back and answers the question as he should have and quotes John 14, 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. That's what Jesus said, and I'm a Christian, so I'm just going to quote Jesus. And Larry King's response to that quote from Jesus was rather egotistical, don't you think? And Rick Warren had the greatest response. He said, yes, it would be if it weren't true. And that, that is what we claim as Christians, that Christ is truly the only way to God. And either that is true or it isn't true. Either we believe something that is ridiculous and false or we believe that what we hold to be true is actually the truth. And truth by its very nature is exclusive. Because if Christianity is true, then those religions that teach the opposite of Christianity cannot also be true. They're mutually exclusive. You can't say this is true, but this, this, and this is also true. But in the air we breathe, this kind of this idea that, of moral relativism where there really isn't clear lines, then everybody gets to be right. Everybody gets to have their opinion and everybody gets to be right. And everybody is going to get a, a participation trophy because we don't want anyone to feel like they're second place or third place or didn't even place. And, and so we're so sensitive to everybody's feelings that sometimes when it comes to truth, um, the exclusivity of Christianity makes us feel like we're in the Stone Ages and everybody else has progressed so far beyond us. Now, I'm not saying we should be mean fundamentalist people with signs. I, I don't even associate myself with that camp. But I do say that in the most loving, 
articulate, intelligent kind of way, we kind of have to come down to brass tacks. The reason that we make Jesus the center is because Jesus is the truth. And if it weren't that way, then why are we doing this? Why, why are we taking time to study and to worship? Here's what I do know that, that is the pressure relief valve for me in these kinds of discussions. And that's this. I know what the Bible teaches about what I need to believe to be saved. But I know that not everybody on every corner of this earth is going to hear it the way I heard it. And I'm going to get corrected when I get to heaven. So correct orthodoxy is not the only way into heaven. Having all your doctoral fine points dies, uh, eyes, dies, eyes dotted, T's crossed, that's not the only way you get in. You know how you get into heaven? Jesus. Jesus gets you into heaven. And I know that God is winning people in Buddhist countries. I know that Jesus is at work in Hindu countries. I know that Muslims are becoming Christians. And, and it may not look like your form of Christianity or what you understand. But when you get to heaven, Revelation says that you're going to be surprised because every tribe, tongue, language, we're all going to be there. And you're going to realize how God has been able to get into places that you thought, well, what about that pygmy on that remote island? God is there and he is reaching out to people. And he will judge them as the judge gets to judge. God never said, you know, you guys, the church, you guys get to be the judge of all people. No, you don't. You're not sitting on the white throne next to God going, <clears throat> I don't know about that one. You know, the thing he believed about sprinkling babies in baptism or their views on communion or they didn't have everything right about the Trinity. Like, let, like let's do our best to study, to, know, to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that not, be, not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But after that, what the heck do you think you know about how God is going to mercifully judge all men and women? You don't know nothing. All I'm saying is, God, I just want to love you and be true to you and show people the way. And if God gives me the opportunity to help somebody adjust bad thinking, then I'm going to do it, and I'm going to use the Bible. But I don't have to live in this tension of, well, I don't know, like, because someone could come to me and say, so Brian, you're telling me that all the billions of people that follow the Hindu religion are going to hell? No, I'm not telling you that. What are you, some kind of pluralist? No, I'm telling you, Jesus is their judge, not me. I'm going to preach Jesus as the way to God, always, unapologetically. Well, then you saying that means that you're saying all Muslims are condemned to hell. No, I, did I say that? I'm just going to tell you what Jesus said. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Well, what if they don't believe like you believe? God is going to be the judge over them. And if you're that concerned, go to the Middle East and become a missionary. But if, you know, if we're going to sit here in comfortable America and have this discussion, then I'm just going to say, we know this, God is the judge. So you're relieved of duty. You're not the judge and jury. You're just, you're, you're just part of the witness to say, I'm just witnessing of what I know to be true about God. I'm doing my best to think the best I can. And I'm trusting that God knows how frail we all are. And he's going to judge rightly. And that's not weak sauce, loose theology. That is saying God is judge and you are not. What a relief. Number two, this truth is important because Jesus is God's priority. Have you ever thought about that? Why, why do you guys make such a big deal about Jesus? Because God did? Um, <laughs> I mean, if I'm going to, you know, pick a side, you or God, I'm picking God. And if God's like, this is, this is my, I'm pointing to him all the time, then I'm going to be pointing to him all the time. So a few things for you to note to, 
John the Baptist says, look at our text, verse 35, the Father, what, loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. So the Father thinks a lot of His Son and says, here, you get everything. And over and over again, the New Testament shows that the Father points to Jesus at Jesus' baptism. When Jesus is being baptized in Matthew 3, chapter 3, verse 17, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then later on, When Jesus is being transfigured on Mount Hermon in Matthew chapter 17, a voice from the cloud, God spoke, this is my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So the father says, this is my son. I'm pleased with him. This is my son. Listen to him. I'm pointing to my son. But apostolic preaching was in that same vein. In Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 3, verse 36, listen to what he says. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Apostolic preaching said, God made Jesus a big deal. That's why we make Jesus a big deal. Later on, Peter preaching again at Solomon's porch after he'd healed the layman. Acts chapter 3, verse 13. He says, now listen to this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus because Jesus is the center of Christianity and the Father is always pointing to Jesus. And then later Paul, writing of Jesus' humility in Philippians chapter 2, goes on to say, Philippians 2 verses 9 and 10, God exalted him, that is Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and even under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Come on. Say amen. You say amen to that. That's good. Paul again writing in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in Him. And then finally... I could go on and on with these verses. You know I could, but I'm not going to. I'm going to finish here. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says this. Now just listen to these words as I read them. In the past, Old Testament, God spoke to our ancestors, Israel, through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That's how, the pro- that's how Israel knew God through the prophets and the sacrificial system. That's how God used to speak. But in these last days, God's changed his method of communication. He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. He appoints him the heir of everything, and and he is accredited with the making of the universe. So Jesus is a big deal. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Let the church say, amen. Amen. Jesus is a big deal. He's an important deal because he is the truth and God made Jesus a priority. Saying over and over, look at my son. He will save you. He will redeem you. He has life in him. Look at my son. He will satisfy. He is the one, the focal point, the one that I've glorified. God's agenda for us in this age is that we would follow and find life in Jesus Christ. That we would make Jesus, we would make much of Jesus the center of our lives. 
And then finally, this is important, not only because Jesus is true and he's God's priority, but finally, I finish here, Jesus is where life is found. John the Baptist's last words, sort of his mic drop and walk off the scene of world history. Last recorded words of John the Baptist, right here. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son shall have eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is how John the Baptist finishes these words. If you have the Son, you have eternal life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. But God's wrath remains on you. Jesus has life for you. Believe in Jesus. Should you reject Jesus, you will not get the life that is essentially in Jesus, but you will remain as John the Baptist says, under God's wrath. This is eternal life. John speaks of life. When we talk about life, eternal life, the idea can often be it's about quantity of life. That is, we just go on for eternity. But life, eternal life, is not just about quantity, but quality of life. It literally means life in the age to come. But eternal life starts now when God rebirths your heart. Eternal life isn't in the sweet by and by after you die. Eternal life starts when you get the life of Christ, eternal life in you, and you begin to share the life of God. You and Jesus now are sharing in the life that God offers, eternal life. And this Greek word for life is a beautiful word. It's the word zoe. Like Zoe spells her name. Where is Zoe? Is that how you spell your name? Yeah, that's why your parents named you that, life. But this Greek word Zoe is the absolute fullness of life. The Greek lexicon defines Zoe life this way. I love this. Life, real and genuine, a life active and vigorous, devoted to God, blessed in the portion even in this world of those who put their trust in Christ. But after the resurrection, to be consummated by many new accessions, among them a more perfect body, and we can say amen to that, that will last forever. The life of God is intended for you to experience. God is not a doctrine to be known as much as he is a person to be experienced. Now for many of you, you're aware that I moved out to North Carolina three years ago from Southern Oregon. I love it out here in North Carolina, but there are a few things I miss about Oregon. One of those is the beautiful, clear, life-giving rivers all over Southern Oregon. Oh man, I love the rivers there. And when I was a kid, we found the coolest swimming hole any kid could find. Right on the Applegate River, and it was like five to ten miles from where I was working at my church, and so during the hot three-digit summers in Southern Oregon, I could just during my lunch break, I'd go up to this little, this little swimming hole off the gorge, off the Applegate River, we called it the gorge, and it was this beautiful little spot, rocks lining and trees lining, this beautiful clear river, the, the, the river that you could drink from kind of thing. And it was just life-giving. There's this little pool and uh, the coolest rope swing I've ever been on, and I've been on a few because Southern Oregon, again, land of rivers, this was the coolest rope swing. So you jump off these rocks into this deep pool of clear beautiful, you, you just dive in and start drinking. 
right? And swimming and just life just flushing into you, right? And then you swim to the other side and get on the rope swing. It's just awesome. Spent many, many, many summertime days there. Um, but the thing is about this particular uh, analogy is that, you know, I used to bring people up to see the gorge, but not all, all of them were as hardy or as bold as I was to jump in this river off this tall rock. And so it'd be like 100 degrees plus, I'd be in my chacos and swim trunks, and I'm like everybody in, swimming around, swinging off the rope swing. I look back, the people I brought to visit, they haven't, they're still hot, sweaty, standing on the rock. And I'd be thinking, man, the water's nice, come in. As you stand there on the shore, not experiencing the life that is here, because you see the life, you're close to the life, but you continue in your thirsty, sweaty, hot, 100 plus degree weather state, because you won't jump into the life, you won't experience the life. And using the eternal life that Jesus gives as, as a river illustration, you got to get in this river to enjoy it. This isn't just about intellectual ascent. Oh yeah, I know this and this about my Christology. Listen, if you ain't in the river, then the life of God is not in you, and you are not in the life of God. But let me tell you, the water's nice. Get in this river. The point of today is to call you into the river of God. To call you into the river that Jesus promises called eternal life. Zoe life. Get in. Eternal life starts here and now and goes on even better into eternity. But you're not waiting for eternal life. You can get in this river right now. My question is, are you in the river? Or are you standing there? You know I, mean? I think when John the Baptist said, he that has the son has eternal life, he's thinking about people jumping in the river. But he that does not have the son does not have eternal life. They're not in the river. The wrath of God remains on them. That is, they were under the wrath of God. It was 100 plus degrees when they walked up. They were sweaty and hot. And they're just sweaty and hot like they always were. They're thirsty, but they won't get in the river. And the wrath of God remains. They're still going to be hot and sweaty. They won't receive the life that God offers, even though the river's right there. Get in the river. You say, well, Brian, maybe you've taken this analogy too far because I understand getting in rivers. What I don't understand is rope swinging into God's eternal life. I mean, come on. I know how to get in a river, but what does it look like for me to jump in? If you're asking us to get into the river to make Jesus the center, if Jesus is so important, I don't even know how to get in. What must I do to jump in this river, to drink this fresh water, to enjoy the thrill of this rope swing, to experience the life here? Well, I'm going to give you a couple suggestions. There are probably more, but these are the ones that I want to put before us this morning as we draw to a close. One of the things I would say to us is you need to be willing to risk. Getting in the river is a risk. Being willing to be out of your comfort zone, that is life in the river. Getting into the life of God is not going to be life in your comfort zone. Being willing to say yes to God whenever, however, whoever, whatever he calls you to do. Expect it to entail some risk. So the first thing that getting in the river means is that we're going to risk something. We're going to step out of our normal comforts and we're going to step out into the realm of God. And we just open ourselves up and say, God, what do you want? I'll, I'll do it. I'm here. I'm open to you, God. Secondly, pursue spiritual renewal. I read a definition of um, revival and I liked it. I 
thought I'd share it with you. As we think about pursuing spiritual renewal in our own lives, especially for those of us who have been Christians for a while, and you don't feel like you're a Christian inside the river, listen to this. This pursuit of renewal, renewal being the overwhelming sense of God's presence that falls powerfully on a Christian people who had previously become dead and lethargic in their spiritual lives. So you you revive things that used to be alive. You resurrect dead things. You revive things that have kind of gone into a state of lethargy and death. A Christian people who who have become dead and lethargic are revived by God's power in their spiritual lives, reviving, now this is an important key to revival, reviving those elements of the Christian life that God intends to be normal for his church. It's almost worth writing a book called Normal Christianity because a lot of us are living outside of the river and we think that's normal. But actually, if you really study what was normal to the early Christians, you would say, actually, I'm the weird one. Not being in the river is weird. Not being full of the Holy Spirit, that's weird. That's not normal. And we have to be able to call that out in each other and go, you know, that is not normal, bro. You're not living in the, the life of God. That is not normal. Christianity isn't a life without any pain, hardship, or difficulty. But there are certain things that just come with the territory that if you're living in the river of God, that's normal Christianity. Sometimes we think things that are normal are extraordinary. Oh, that's extraordinary Christianity. No, that's normal. And if you're not living in normal Christianity, then you ain't even in the river. You're dry, hot on a hot North Carolina day and the water's right there. You're on Lake Jordan, you won't even jump in. Although Lake Jordan does go warm in the summer, but you know. We pursue this renewal, this revival by turning away from all known sin. I'm not talking about digging deep. I'm saying, what do you know you're doing wrong? Stop doing that. Turn away from that. Step into a place of fresh worship and obedience to God. Fresh obedience to God. Restoring broken relationships and willingly offering your life to God for his use. That's how we say I want to be in the river. I want, I want to pursue spiritual renewal. Thirdly, and this is important, expect to encounter God. Don't expect that God is not going to answer your call, but actually expect that God wants to make himself known to you. Do you think you want God more than he wants you? Do you? Who wants, who wants you in the river more than you want in the river? God. And so expecting that God wants to to bring you into this life by the Holy Spirit that you can tangibly sense and experience, you should expect that from God. Don't expect nothing. We were talking with somebody the other day, and they were asking my wife and I, like, how do I I experience the power of the Holy Spirit? And they they had, we came to the the conclusion that they had come to a place where they weren't really expecting anything to happen. And, and so I said, well, well, first of all, you got to ditch that bad thinking. You expect God to respond. Expect God to, in a way that you would be able to sense his presence, respond to you when you call out for re- revival and renewal in your life. Because remember, God is, a calling, is calling us to experience a person, not just study a doctrine. And then, fourthly, simplify your life from distractions. Adopt a minimalist life. I know it's real popular and cool right now. I'm not just talking about get rid of all your stuff at garage sales. I'm saying like spiritually unclutter your soul. Your calendar needs to be simplified and minimalized. You won't want revival, but we don't have any time for it. 
God, fall on me and do great things as you did of old, but I don't have any time for you, so if you can fit me in at lunchtime for half an hour. Being a spiritual minimalist, physically material minimalist, minimalizing the stresses inside of your schedule and your soul, making room for God. That's why we're calling you into this Advent, or this, excuse me, Advent, um, this, this season of um, Lent. I'm sorry. The season of Lent um, where we're just saying, take time, clear your schedule, be alone with God, be centered on God. Ask, ask God the hard question, what do you want to take away from my life? We always want to know what he wants to give us, but he might have a few things to say, you know, this activity you do every week, waste of time. You know this Netflix show you binge on? Waste of time. If you want revival, if you want to stay outside of the river dry, hot, stinky, sweaty, miserable, fine. Keep doing what you're doing. If you actually want in the river, you're probably going to have to change something. The hard thing is, most of us don't want to change anything. I wonder how many of you right now are hearing my voice and you're just going, la, 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 la. Because I'm saying, put down your smartphones. Stop watching so much TV. Stop signing up for everything. Figure out how to have meaningful margins in your life. Get rid of stuff. Take long periods of time to listen to God. Go for long walks. Do crazy things like drive without the radio on for no other reason than, God, I'm just in this car to... I just want you to speak to me. I just want God. I'm going to put on some worship maybe. I'm going to put on some worship. I'm just going to praise you. When was the last time you just went off by yourself for an extended period of time? You said, God, I'm here. Speak to me. Simplify your life. And then finally, and simply, pursue God with your head, heart, and hands. Some of us are head Christians. Some of us are heart Christians. And some of us are hands Christians. Pursuing God is all three. I tend to like the head and the heart stuff. The head, yes. I, I enjoy reading and thinking. You need to do a, a bit of that. You need, to, you need to read books that stir your soul. Read power lines. Oh my goodness. That's going to stir you. Read The Baptism with the Holy Spirit by R.A. Torrey. That's going to stir you. Read Charles Finney. Read his journals and how he experienced God. Read uh, Systematic Theology on a Study of the Holy Spirit. Read things, listen to things that powerfully move you. Read some of Jim Cimbala's works, Fresh Power especially, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Beautiful books about God's power in a church and in a people that prayed and sought this, the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Head, then your heart. This is prayer, this is a silence and solitude. This is worship, this is digging into God. This is experiences in His presence. And then... Your hands, go do something. Go do something. Go serve somebody. Go love somebody. Go actively seek to step out in faith. But at the end of the day, get in the river. It's hot. You're dry. You're thirsty. And God has given us his son, Jesus, as the very center. And, he's, and John the Baptist said, he has eternal life. If you don't have him, you don't have life. God's wrath, you remain in God's wrath. You remain outside the river on a hot day. You want this life? Jump in. Dive in. Pursue the Lord. And watch 
how what the Bible says comes true. If we will pursue God, if we will seek God, He will seek us. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Get in that river. Do what you got to do. Let, may, may the Holy Spirit actively be at work in your heart right now to say, you know, I'm going to do something about this. Love Him with your head, heart, and hands. Go do something about this. Make the adjustments that are necessary. Be a spiritual minimalist. Do something about this. Get in the river and enjoy God. How many of you want that life? The life that comes in the river of God. Father, I pray now as we enter into a time now of singing and eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus, the, the bread and the cup, I pray now that as we worship you and we even consider does this particular piece of Scripture and this application have any bearing on the way I'm living my life, Father, I pray that there would be a group of followers here this morning, not just people who are really good at sitting through sermons and then walking out with no changes. Father, we want to be changed. I want to be changed. I want to be a different kind of human being, a different kind of follower of Jesus. And so I pray that the words that have been spoken and have been read from the scriptures would take place in our heart and that we would be ever continually more a Jesus church, a church that is marked by the life of Jesus that we would be a church that experiences the life of Jesus. Even, even while we must preach it, we must also experience this life. And where at Emmaus we're not experiencing the life of Jesus, though we preach him, Lord, I pray that, that something would change today for us. That many of us would be getting in this river, some for the very first time who just aren't in the river and are, are outside of the river and the wrath of God remains on them. Then some who, who say, it's been a while and I'm really dry. I'm not really tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. It's been a while since I've been in the river. Father, call us to come back in. Revive us, God, who have become lethargic and lazy. Bring us back into the life-giving streams that you offer. And Father, we pray that we would come and take your invitation all who are thirsty. Come and drink of this living water. If any man thirsts, let him come to me, Jesus said. We come to you now. So as we're just worshiping the Lord in this next song, get in the river. Express your soul to God.